This is episode number 487 with Sharice Cook, Healing from Codependency. And I just saw Sharice go, what? 487? Impressive. (laughs) Hard to believe, but I've been doing this for almost nine years. And um, unfortunately, a lot of episodes got lost when I switched servers, um, podcast servers. But I thought about it and actually let it go because a lot of my first episodes were terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And letting go is a really important part of dating and relationships. Indeed it is. Right? (laughs) So we're going to bring Sharice on in a minute, but I just want to say hello. I am Sandy Wiener and welcome back to Last First Date Radio, where we believe it is never too late to go on your last first date date. And if you want some support on your journey to lasting love, I wrote a book. It's called Becoming a Woman of Value, How to Thrive in Life and Love. It's not just for singles. It's for anybody who wants to thrive. It's actually not even just for women, but don't have anybody. And it's filled with 30 chapters. Each chapter has a a step, a tip, which I'm going to share in a minute. And there are stories and each chapter ends with an exercise to help you step more fully into your value. There are three pillars of core confidence in the book and there's show up, stand up, speak up. And in order to really be fully in your value, you want to show up fully with your values, with who you are. You want to stand up for what's important to you. And you want to speak up, which I'm sure we're going to touch on today because we're talking about codependency. So you can find it on Amazon in Kindle and paperback. And this week's tip on becoming a woman of value is step number 17, let go of toxic people just so happens that we're talking about toxicity in this week's episode. We often don't even realize that we have toxic people in our lives or that we can let them go. And it can even be a family member. I mean, I have let go Mm. of several family members. I remember I had one family member who used to call me up and tell me how I should be taking care of my father. I should have him move into my house and I should be doing this and that. And I really cut that relationship off. So if you have toxic people in your life or people who are toxic to you, rather, I challenge you to really take a look and ask yourself, what is the value of keeping these people in your life? And what would happen if you let them go? And now before I bring on Charisse, I just want to give a shout out to my Facebook group. It's called Your Last First Date. It is fantastic, if I may say so myself. We have about 3,500, maybe even more women in there. And it is not one of these groups that goes off the rails and is just a place for venting about how horrible dating is and how terrible men are. And none of that is allowed in my group. I have seven fabulous monitors who help me manage the group. So unlike most groups for singles, it is really curated. We don't post anything that's negative and shaming. It is all to help you grow and reach that last first date. So join us there at your last first date. Now for my guest, Sharice Cook. She is coming to us all the way from England on the coast. And she's been a therapist for 17 years and in a relationship for almost 15 years which is why she knows firsthand the traps that we fall into in relationships. She offers step-by-step online teaching and videos that outline exactly what you need to do to improve your relationships. And she writes how-to articles that tackle the biggest problems in modern relationships. Plus, she also answers your questions in the Agony Ant section of her website. Welcome to the podcast, Charisse. Ah, thank you, Sandy. It's so lovely to be here. So hello from England. <laughs> I love having people from across the pond and their lovely accents. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to start with a little about you and what inspired you to do this work, become a therapist and to focus on relationships. My love of human behavior happened very, very early on in life. And um, I think like many people, there's a sort of, there's a type of person who's very observant and can notice things that happen in life. And maybe this is part of my codependency and we can explore this (laughs) as we go on. 
But um, yeah, I would say a fascination has always been there. And like many people, my own life journey sort of forced me to look at my own stuff very, very young. And I, um, I trained in my 20s to become a therapist. And um, I actually started my work in rehabs. I worked in treatment centers. And it's an interesting thing. I just naturally gravitated towards working with the families. And the families, the family groups, the family sessions were all about relationships. And then I noticed that even when I was working with the people in rehab, in the groups, somehow we always ended up talking about relationships or we spoke about the stuff of relationships, whether that was loneliness or disconnection or fear. And so I just feel like it's just naturally I've been led to really focus my career and all my trainings that within that on relationships, because I believe everything kind of boils down to our relationships. It's, it's such a key part of being a human. So true. Uh, so do you mind sharing a little bit about what that, those early experiences were that got you to really fo focus on this? Um, well, I think my own struggles with um, relationships became very apparent. I would describe myself as a very giving person. And that I suppose is what makes a therapist. If you look at a therapist, there's gonna be someone who wants to make positive change, really puts a lot of effort into relationships and really cares about people. And I think for me, when I was young, I didn't have a lot of great boundaries about how to look after the fact that I was a really caring, open, giving person. And for that to always be appropriate and for that always to be in my best interest. So I have a whole slew of depressing and sad love stories from when I was younger that were sufficiently painful for me that I was forced to really sort of look at my own stuff. And I've worked with some amazing people who've really shown me a very different way of being able to be in relationship and be in the world that speaks of, you know, really being able to be honest and to be who I am, which is a loving, giving person but to do it in a way that is really healthy and it's ultimately esteeming to me. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of our listeners, including me, can relate to <laughs> a lot of what you said. I think many of us struggle with our relationships. We don't really know why. And it's so fascinating when you do the work and realize you can connect the dots and you can really start to understand that there's a reason why we make the choices we make, why we behave the way we do. And the awareness is the first step to healing. Mm. So yes, I yeah. think I think searching for answers is definitely something that's very interesting to me. And the world of psychology and psychotherapy and philosophy and art are kind of great with that because I sort of know now that actually as humans, our behavior is very predictable. You know, what we do you will know it's kind of after a period of time, there aren't any surprises. And there's something so liberating and freeing about recognizing our own patterns and our own ways of doing things that speak of perhaps insecurity or pain, but are also really not going to get us what we want. And so there are things to be done to develop more helpful and constructive ways of, of doing life and doing relationships. And that's been very um, empowering for me. And I really enjoy passing that on to others. Yeah, that word empowering is, is so resonant for me. It's, I think we feel disempowered when we don't understand and we feel like mm. we're just a victim of these relationships that cause us heartache. Yes. And just having that knowledge is so much power. And, uh, you know, I remember just relationship after relationship in my teens and my early twenties where I just didn't get it. Like, why do the people I like not like me back? And why, why do I lose myself mm. in relationships? Mm. And why, why did I become obsessed for seven years in high school in through my yeah. early twenties with somebody who I didn't even know if he loved me because we never talked about it. And so right. it's like crazy stuff mm. that when you figure it out, it really makes perfect sense. And so much yeah. of it has to do with our upbringing. So let's, mm. let's talk a little bit about um, codependency because codependency is one of these unhealthy relationship mm. patterns that many, many people repeat. So what, mm. what, how would you define it? 
I would define codependency in a simple way because it encompasses, I think, a huge amount of our human behavior, but also our beliefs and our thought processes. But in a very, very simple way, I say codependency is the over-focusing on others and the under-focusing on ourselves. And that, within that, that encompasses a sense of responsibility. It can sometimes be a sense of control or lack of control. It's prioritizing someone else as being tuned into someone else's emotional experience and not our own. And you used a really great phrase um, a minute ago, which is we lose ourselves. And I think there's something very powerful about noticing our adult behavior that is, you know, perhaps of this ilk. And that can then speak of maybe some experiences that we had in our younger years and why we learned to focus more on others or prioritize others or other people are more important than us or we've got to bend and pretzel ourselves to be lovable or get approval or be liked you know we can we can stem it back I, I always think it's interesting to look at the behavior today and then kind of work our way back to go oh wow well maybe that's because of this or that's because of that yeah, uh, I like the simplicity of over-focusing on others and under-focusing on ourselves. I, I think this mm. has been like such an epiphany for so many of my clients. It's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even realize that I've been neglecting mm. myself and I've been focusing yeah. on other people and focusing on their happiness over my own and their well-being over my own. Yeah. I remember asking one woman whose husband had asked for a divorce or kind of half-assed asked for a divorce <laughs> didn't really I think right. I don't love you I'm not sure uh, what I want I'll get back to you and she was devastated and I yeah. said what do you want and she mm. had no idea because she never asked herself that question yeah so yeah let's, let's, a, yeah go ahead I'm sorry I was just going to say the phrase that came to mind there is needless and wantless mm. is that actually for us having needs or having wants you know Unless we're asked when we're young, unless that's a priority, what do you think? What do you want? What do you prefer? You know, for many of us, we weren't raised kind of to really have a voice and to be part of things. And for us to even begin to identify, oh, I like that. I need that. Or I don't like the situation. You know, something needs to change. Often the parenting would be keep quiet, you know, be obedient or, you know, stop acting out or whatever. So we don't learn to sort of really know and certainly value what it is that we want and what it is that we need. And actually we, we become so disconnected from ourselves that we lose sight of that. We don't even know. I will be working with a couple and I'll say, okay, so let's just be really clear. So what is it that you want right now? And sometimes people just look at me like, and I can see they just don't even know. They don't even know to ask, please, can you just hold my hand? You know, please, can you just give me a moment? I just need to take this in, you know, we don't even know to ask what we want or what we need. It's so true. I think one of the, like with boundaries or speaking up, we can't do either one if we don't know what we're protecting, if we don't mm. know what mm. are those, those lines that people cannot cross or what we want to keep safe. And yeah. unless we do the work, and I remember at the beginning of my coaching training, we were doing values exercises and it was like so yeah. eye-opening to start to get an idea. Mm -hmm. These values matter to me because most of us are raised to be chameleons. We adapt. Yeah. We want to be liked. We want to be, uh, we, we want to be accepted, which it is important to be accepted. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it's not important to be liked by everyone and mm -hmm. to give up who you are in the process. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Beautifully said. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of codependency. You talked a little mm -hmm. bit about how we were raised. And so what would that look like? I think um, in the olden days, um, there was always a focus on addiction when we spoke about codependency. I think we all appreciate now it can, it can be shaped in many kind of um, family environments. And, you know, like we've been saying, there's something about a loss of ourselves in the family dynamic. I think that often there is, I, I believe we can all play roles in our family and often the role of um, being the caretaker or being the listener or being the understanding one, that is a sort of stereotypical kind of um, role in which codependent behaviors can develop. 
But there's, I think there's also a, um, I think there's another side to codependency, which is a little bit less understood, which is, um, it's quite a dominating side. It's quite a strong side. And um, I used to work with um, a great man and he would talk about that there's a sort of, um, there's a submissive and there's a dominant kind of codependency. And um, the submissive codependency works on the premise of do as I say, or I'll hurt me meaning we're gonna collapse or we're gonna cry or it's gonna be awful for us or we're gonna feel really bad. And the dominant version of that is do as I say or I'll hurt you. I'm gonna punish you. I'm gonna give you the cold shoulder. I'm gonna belittle you. I'm gonna walk out or kind of whatever. So there's something interesting I think about um, survival. You know, I think when we're young, when love isn't forthcoming and it isn't always secure and there isn't the consistency, there isn't all this good stuff that we know that we need when we're little, it becomes a little bit more about survival and we're going to do whatever it takes to survive. And that might mean completely sort of um, subverting what we want and being really passive and looking after others, which is a typical codependent thing. But I think there's also something about where we can be overly responsible and we become quite sort of strong characters and quite dominating characters, which is another part of codependency, because it's still about us needing to do something to be loved. We need to be a certain way, fulfill a certain need of other people so we can then get the love or acceptance and care that we crave. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, bringing up so many thoughts for me. I, I, it's interesting, the whole dominating and dominant and submissive mm. parts of codependency. I, what comes to mind is like if a parent and child are in a codependent relationship, they mm. play different roles. And um, there's also a term, and then I used this last night in a, I, I gave a master class on attachment theory. And the term emotional hunger. I mm. love that term. A lot of parents, I think, who are emotionally hungry, who have not worked on yes. their own stuff, they look to their children to fill a void. And that leads yes. to codependency. So can you speak to that a little bit? Because mm. this is kind of bringing this to mind. Mm, I love that. And when you and when you say that, I love that emotional hunger. That's such an evocative phrase. I love it. And I immediately think of you know, one of my favorite songs, kind of Bruce Springsteen, everyone's got a hungry heart. Uh -huh. I think, you know, that's so sort of true in a way. But yeah, I think, I think the parent-child thing is actually a really good um, example because it does speak of the power. You know, there's, there's, there's often a power imbalance and, and it goes backwards and forwards. And so sometimes the parent, you know, well, the parent does have a lot of power because they are the parent. But when we're in a codependent relationship, we can, it, it can go back and forth. And so sometimes we can feel so frightened of our children and we give them so much power and they can sort of be on us a certain way. And so it's like the sort of both people, I think there's something very powerful about codependency, which is this, it is the sense of feeling like a bit of a victim. And sometimes we don't, so sometimes we can be having a lot of power, like in the parent example that you're giving. And so we have the power and at the same time, we feel like the victim. And that's a very interesting place because we're lacking awareness into ourselves there about what is my behavior doing? And, you know, um, when I'm working with um, couples, I'll often say, this is a codependent process that's happening. And they'll sometimes be shocked. And often the man is shocked. They'll say, I'm not codependent you know, don't be ridiculous. And I'll say, well, you've blamed your partner for every single thing for the last half an hour. You are much more focused on your partner's issues and you are not in any way understanding your own, you know, you're over-focusing on the other person. And so I think any relationship where we feel powerless is perhaps a sign for us that there may be codependency happening. For, for the parent-child, I guess, that you are going to feel that. But for more adult relationships, you can notice, I may feel powerless, but am I? And that's the interesting point to then start looking at some of the dynamics of what's really going on. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Music Unlimited. You can listen to over 70 million songs and thousands of playlists and stations 
Plus, you can now stream your favorite podcasts like Last First Date Radio. You can listen to any song, anytime, anywhere, on any of your devices, your smartphone, your tablet, your PC or Mac, Fire TV, and any Alexa-enabled devices like the Amazon Echo. Get Amazon Music Unlimited for free for 30 days. Just head on over to getamazonmusic.com forward slash last first date to learn more and claim this offer. People have these kinds of relationships all the time where one partner does not take responsibility at all. There's a lot of blame and shame and a lot of marriages end because of that. I, even in the dating world, you can hear in a first conversation with a potential partner, you know, um, oh, my ex-wife was horrible. Mm. She did all these terrible things. I really love to know how a person speaks about their ex. And I I had a guest on who said, one one of the greatest questions you can ask is if your ex was here with us now, (gasps) why would they say the relationship ended? Isn't that a good way to get (laughs) come in through the back door, right? Yeah. And and then she said, and then ask them if you agree. Mm -hmm. So it's two part question. Why would they say? Mm. And I actually asked that once on a date and the guy said, yeah, she would say I was a jerk and she would be right. Thank you. you Okay. (laughs) What made you a jerk? Yeah. And what are you now? Yes. Are you still that guy? Okay. Or what have you learned right. since then? And so we can really get clarity around, you know, has this person done any work on themselves? Do, do they mm. think they're part of it? And I, I remember being part of a group forum where people were talking about emotional abuse and how there's never the person who's the victim of emotional abuse mm. doesn't have any part in it. Like it's all it happened to them. Mm. And when, again, that powerlessness, it can feel true. Like I didn't have a choice. Mm. Um, And I believe, and I'd love to hear your opinion on this, that we just don't have the knowledge or the skills to know we're a choice, but we have chosen to stay. We have chosen that partner for a reason, you know, often healing, often we're trying to fix a an issue from our past. And that person reminds us of a toxic parent, somebody we've had issues with, and Mm. we subconsciously want to heal it. So it's, it's not just this person is terrible. And a lot of people stay in these relationships with full knowledge that they have the ability to leave. It's almost like Mm. you're in, you're in jail, but you don't realize that it's just, the bars are just in front of you and you can, you can leave whenever you want. Right. So, yeah. So tell us like when people do feel powerless, um, where is their power? Mm. I mean, I love that observation and that is so, so true. And for me, the powerlessness and the staying that you observe and you and I probably see with so many people is for me, that really represents how young we are often when we are relating to people. And so some of the stuff, this, this all got imprinted in us when we were really little, when we didn't have a choice. We don't walk away from our family. We don't, you know, well, I suppose some people run away or whatever, but you know, we, on the contrary, our survival depends on us staying. And that's when we're gonna do these behaviors, whatever it takes, you know, how do I appease them, make them okay, or, you know, look after them or whatever it takes. There is, when we are little, we know we can't leave. We do not have the choice to leave. And I think that that is part of the imprinting. That's part of when we're then adults. You, you know, you will know you've worked with people. I've worked with people. It doesn't occur to people that they could leave. It, it, it literally almost isn't an option available to them. And that to me is because they're in this very young place, relating from that very young place where it isn't about them and their well-being and their dreams for a relationship. It's about surviving and making this person love them 
and sort of dealing with whatever's going on and putting a lot of effort into it, you know, very effortful, very over-functioning. I think codependence can be in a relationship, trying to make it okay, whatever it takes, coaxing, cajoling. And then if that doesn't work, we get really angry and we start lecturing and we start, you know, accusing and condemning. And then we go back to cajoling. And the whole premise is how do I get the love that I really wanted from mommy or daddy or any family member and I I need to get that from you and I'm not going to be walking away and so that really speaks of the powerlessness and so I think developing our power recognizing our power really is a shifting into a much more adult state of mind and it's really learning how to be adult in relationships and that often I think is, is a whole process it's definitely not just a decision that can just be made Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good, good description about what really goes on. And I'm thinking even of a person who had a codependent marriage is now in a codependent relationship with her daughter. Mm. And um, she doesn't really connect with her daughter. And she's working really hard to get the connection she wants. And she keeps putting out bids for connection, and it keeps getting rejected. And I said to her, what would happen if you just accepted that this is the best she can do? And it's like, it's very hard for her to accept that, to accept Mm -hmm. that really that she's, that she is at choice and that her daughter may not be willing or able to go deeper with her and Mm -hmm. to really admit her own issues. And so that this whole control thing comes up too, yeah. because when you're really working hard at making somebody love you, you're trying to control them. Mm. It's very subconscious, but you are, you're trying to see, well, what can I do or say? I did this in my marriage. I tried a hundred different ways of speaking to my husband so that he would resolve conflict with me so that he would be more intimately mm. close in the way that I needed, but he wasn't that person. And so year after year after year and through all these struggles and through therapy that didn't work, you know, it's like, I don't want to quit because I was programmed from an early age that you work really hard at something and you just don't quit because if you work hard enough, you'll get the love you need. And that's not true of people who can't give you that love. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I think, yeah, I mean, there really is the thing where we feel it's our job to make it okay. And my advice, you know, for for anyone feeling that awful sort of, it's often a, a sort of an anxiety and a compulsion all at once to be doing, fixing, making okay, paving the way, you know, you know, really wading in, you know, we are the waders in, you know, if there's something that needs to be solved, if there's a problem, we're going to be the volunteers, we're going to wade in. And what I will always say to anyone that's particularly wanting to work on this is that I always say do less. And that often I think brings with it such discomfort, because there's such a, you know, there is a payoff with all the doing and all the overfunctioning and the fixing. It's kind of, we, we are under the illusion that we're doing something and, and we're not actually doing anything. We're doing that being on the proverbial rocking chair, not going anywhere. And, but what we're also doing, I think sometimes is we're giving ourselves an activity to do to avoid the reality of the relationship. And so By doing less, we then can sort of sit back in our chair, if you like, not be perched on the edge of our chair. We sit back in our chair and then we have to see, we have to see, you know, how open the person is to talking about things or, you know, how, how much they volunteer their time or how respectful they are of us. And we get to genuinely see what is on offer and, um, I think that sort of acceptance, like you were saying so beautifully that when you were with this woman, that acceptance is really hard for us because often the fear is, is that we're going to accept something that is really frightening, which is this person can't give me what I want, or this person isn't right for me, or, you know, how relationships work um, isn't how I think it is. And so then what does that mean? And then I'm going to feel even more out of control and powerless. So there is often, I think, a real investment in codependent behavior and kind of go, go, do, do, do. 
because it does, it's like a, an emotional set of worry beads. It gives us something to do, but ultimately it is actually also an avoidant process, I think. Yeah, so true. I think that also programmed from early childhood is that doing is how we are valued. Right. And you mentioned that mm. earlier. And I think that being feels like yeah. I'm not doing enough. <laughs> how can I just be and be mm. and be loved for just me? I think it's one of the hardest things for people to embrace. And mm. I also think that leaning back and doing less is so hard. It, yeah. It's, you know, like you said, it does bring so much discomfort. You know, it's, it's something I recommend is, is when somebody has an issue to, to bring it up and then mm. wait, see yes. what happens because it's not our job to constantly fix. And I'll tell you, I was mm. talking to you before about how my son moved out this week mm. and there was a part of me <laughs> as his mother, <laughs> that right. I wanted to remind him of all the things he had to yeah. do. And, and, you know, did you get this? And did you do that? And I know how much I can't stand it when my mother <laughs> does that to me, yeah. because I need my agency and yes, he needs his. And so I told him a few times, I said, there's a part of me that just wants to do it all for you and make your list for you. But I trust that you can do this. And, um, and he really appreciated it. And he appreciated when I went shopping with him and I helped him to know what to buy, but I didn't buy it Mm. for him and I didn't do it for him, but it took a lot of effort to suppress my desire to be in control of everything. (laughs) (laughs) I totally relate. Of course. I totally understand. And yeah, well done. It sounds like you did absolutely brilliantly. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of when we're really agitating to just be saying, just let me know if there's anything I can do. I'm so, you know, desperate to sort of help you in any way, because there really is that difficulty in waiting to be asked. Yeah. I think that's that's perhaps another um, maybe a, a sort of a, a, a valid criticism of uh, people who have codependence uh, tendency is that you know we might do stuff for people without being asked. We're sort of maybe we'll give unsolicited advice, we'll tell people what to do, or we'll just do something because you know someone's got to do it, and you know oh well, you know if it's if it's going to be done properly, we'll just do it ourselves, and kind of you know we're those kind of people, and we can actually get ourselves into a bit of a pickle because it can put people's noses out of joints and it can rub people up the wrong way when we are giving and they've not asked for it, and then we often also get resentful when we've done something perhaps unsolicited and people aren't grateful enough yeah. <laughs> or, you know, we, you know, they, no one appreciates. And after all I've done for you, you know, we're in, we're in that territory and then we're hop, skipping a jump away from martyr territory. And so there are, there are a lot of dangers I think to be aware of. So true. I mean, I grew up in that environment of the martyrs and the, oh gosh, you yeah. know, the victim martyr. And I, I, my mother, is comes she says I come from a long line of martyrs and I said (laughs) yeah so do I mom yeah (laughs) and it's actually possible to break this chain yeah and she's constantly telling everybody what to do and so I've learned to tell her I appreciate that you're trying to help yeah and this is not working for me can Mm. I tell you what would work better and I remember even back when I was in coaching training and I was starting my certification and I was giving my first workshop and I was really nervous. And she said, don't be nervous. And I said, you know, you're telling me not to feel something. And I actually want to feel what I feel. Um, Can I tell you what would work better for me? (laughs) So I'm learning to, you know, to do that more. And I think that's, that was a big step out of codependency for me because I would just get resentful in the past. And I said, you know, what I would love to hear is I believe in you, you got this, Mm. you know, rather than stop feeling anything because it makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) Ah, that's so beautiful. That's such a beautiful teaching. Yeah. I think it's great being able to teach people when we perhaps are a bit more aware of our needs. We're not needless and wantless. We don't just go along and don't need anything. Don't worry about us. Actually, 
it would be nice. I would love you to say, you've got this, I believe in you. Wow. You know, that would be so powerful for me. And, you know, someone may be receptive and may, and may not be, but we can, we can get better at, at, at asking and making requests. I think there's something else, you know, with us, because we're so good at reading people and intuiting what everyone needs. We expect the same back and then get extremely upset when we don't. So that right. thing of, of actually asking for what we want and making requests that aren't loaded or through gritted teeth or, you know, <laughs> when we're absolutely full of resentment. It's kind of, and I think, you know, with um, all the holidays coming up now and whenever there are, I think, opportunities, shall we say, to miss <laughs> each other and, um, you know, disappoint each other even, it's, it's, I encourage my clients to sort of preempt it. So whether it's a wedding or a holiday celebration or a birthday, it's like, you know, the people in your life who maybe are the busy bodies, the codependents, and they want to get in and they, and sort of take over. And I say, give them something to do you know, take charge of it actually, because they're going to do something. So you know what, if you go to them and say, oh, you are so great with flowers, would you be, would it be so amazing if you could just do all the flowers and do these two arrangements or, oh, I, I, I always do the wrapping so badly, you know, could you wrap these gifts for me or whatever? And, you know, suddenly you're, you're giving someone who really does want to give, but you're giving them an out and a, and a place where they can put all of that sort of energy that probably has a lot of love in it something in something that you can actually appreciate and then we can feel again a bit more empowered about what's going on rather than just sort of waiting and then inevitably people behaving the way they're going to behave and then us feeling upset and then we're in a little bit of the same kind of pattern again yeah that's such great advice the preempting <laughs> is always a good idea yeah and I, I think you know you keep repeating patterns you go okay so yeah. this time let's do it differently and right. birthdays especially I find people have expectations of you know oh. I really wanted you to celebrate my birthday this way and yeah. I remember I have some children who would always get upset during mm. birthday season because, I mean, it was just so disappointing. I really wanted something that I didn't get. And I learned during my marriage, actually, I remember my husband getting me terrible presents and not celebrating in a way mm. that really meant anything. And I tried to guide him, but he didn't take feedback well. So I started planning my own birthdays. And when right. I turned 40, I had a sleepover party. I had a newborn, uh, a pretty young baby that I was still nursing. So she stayed home and I sent my husband out with the other kids. And I said, you, you sleeping out, <laughs> that's your job. <laughs> you know, keep the people okay. out until yeah. tomorrow. And I only invited people that I loved and I designed oh, it wow. the way I wanted it. And from that time on, I've been creating my experiences instead of passively waiting and being disappointed. Mm. And so I think that's also important that we, that we not really rely on people who can't show up for us and mm. we give them other jobs. Like I gave yeah. my husband because he did yeah. a good job of keeping the kids away and, and design the life we want. Yeah. Well, that I think speaks of a really loving adult. Like I was saying earlier about, you know, we have to begin to be in the world in a more adult way. And what might that look like? And it's sort of okay to feel disappointed. And I do think you're absolutely right. Birthdays are a tough time for many different reasons. It is an emotional part. Like, am I, you know, a, a day that is made for to us to be celebrated. I mean, this is just, you know, you know, it's just, it's just a, a disaster waiting to happen, isn't it? There's going to be disappointment there. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, being able to really take ownership of that. I think, I think it's, it's sort of painful in a way because, it does mean almost letting go of some wishful thinking or magical thinking and kind of the fantasy maybe of oh, one day someone's going to do this. And it's, it is, I think, I think that's sad. And that is often what maturing into an adult is. It is about letting go of these ideas of, you know, what we imagine life to be, but we can make it like that for ourselves. But um, I often suggest absolutely, again, to preempt disappointment. You know, if you want a really beautiful piece of jewelry for your birthday, tell your partner that. And even go and find five pieces of jewelry you would love, send them the links and do it. It's kind of, 
it isn't about, you know, it is the thought that counts and it is the effort and everything, but to show someone, I would appreciate it if your effort went here, this is what <laughs> matters to me. It, that can feel unromantic and that can feel forced. But I also think there's also something very powerful and important about us saying, hey, I love, I love this. I'd love it if you got me this. Or, hey, I'd love to do this or whatever. And sort of allowing our needs to be met in a way that's really direct and unapologetic. This is yeah. what I want. <laughs> I love that. I, <laughs> mind reading doesn't work. I don't know if people yeah. realize that, but yeah. I, and Amazon has wish lists, So you can have people yeah. make a wish list. We've done that for birthdays where you get to pick. You know, yeah. I like all these things and now I get to pick one of them and give you what you want rather than what you mm. may not want. And, you know, when I moved into uh, my new home after my divorce, I registered. I had never done that in my life. I didn't even do it for my oh, wedding. Wow. And I said, you know, I need a lot of things and people have no idea what to get me. And I yeah. am going to be bold enough to say, here's what I need. Yeah. And I got my pots and my pans oh, and the wow. chairs that I wanted. And I got a barbecue grill. I got everything oh that God. I wanted and needed. Right. So it was fantastic. That is fantastic. I salute you doing that. That is exactly <laughs> what it's all about. That's it. Right? That is it. So let's, um, let's talk about healing from codependency. And we've talked a little bit about it. But if there are some steps people can start with, I know it's not a, you know, here, one and done. But um, where can people begin to heal? I think because it, you know, fundamentally, I'm suggesting that it's this over focusing on others, I think there is something about really taking the energy and that's mental energy, that's emotional energy, and it'll be physical energy, taking the energy that we put into thinking about others, worrying about them, doing things for them, micromanaging them, whatever it is that we might be doing, is, and really redirecting that back into our own lives. That, I think, really gives us the, the right perspective that we need. It's like when we're so over-focused on someone else, we have, in fact, lost perspective. We are now in a bit of a codependent haze and by bringing the focus back to ourselves it's sort of it isn't in a selfish way or self-centered way it's in a healthy way where we take responsibility for ourselves there's a really great phrase in codependency recovery actually which is keep your own side of the street clean and so you know we say focus on your side of the street the other side of the street is not your responsibility if you know they they might leave their trash out they might kind of park wonky or whatever but that's their business so how's how's your side of the street is everything great here you know it, it looks like hold on it looks like there's some repairs that need to take place here yourself and we can be reminded humbly that you know we are fallible and perfect human beings and we've got our own work to do and our own creative pursuits to put time and effort into and our own hobbies and life and friendships and everything else because I think that's perhaps another thing that can happen which is our lives can become very small when we are so almost tunnel vision with another person and um and even if we are seeing our friends or doing other things we're like talking about the other person incessantly and you know moaning or complaining or questioning and it's sort of it, it is almost like a bit of an obsession and so breaking that and being like hold on I've got this yes this may well be a problematic part of my life but there's more to my life I've got a big life I've got friends and I've got hobbies and I've got things I'm doing and I'm doing this with my career thank you very much and so I need to focus on that and that then I think can really calm the nervous system which feels very anxious when we're focusing on someone that ultimately we have no control over so we're always like oh, oh my goodness what am I going to do sort of really getting back to ourselves and remembering you know that old thing the only thing we can control is ourselves and so what are we going to do about ourselves if we are feeling a bit sad or lonely or depressed okay maybe in this relationship I can't you know figure this out now but I can try to do this for myself let me go to my friend who I know loves and adores me let me do this thing that's really enriching and nourishing it's really keep keep on bringing the focus back to ourselves because in many ways we have to get to know ourselves and find out what we like what we enjoy separate to this problematic aspect of our lives so that for me would be a, certainly a starting point recognize 
we are not at the center of our own lives. We're totally focusing on someone else. And so I need to be the hero in my own story. How do I do that? How do I shift things around? So this is a bit more appropriate and healthy. That's a great place to start. I, I think that people often, again, don't realize they're a choice. And, right. um, and I've seen people who think that worry is not a choice. Right. Yeah. And I had this conversation with a client recently who was very worried about a parent and it takes up a lot mm. of her brain space. Yeah. And she's always in overwhelm and always just her life right. is so full and so overwhelmed that mm. it's hard for her to focus on herself. And so there's a lot of numbing that goes on. Mm. And, and I said, do you really feel that worry is helpful? How is it helping your parent? How mm. is it helping you? Well, but then I, I, it looks like I don't care. No, you can care and not worry. (laughs) And it's hard for people to see that. I I find there are a lot of parents who worry about their kids and Mm. I'm like, I don't really worry about my kids. Like I, I trust that my kids have some skills. They have some good skills Mm. because I helped them through a lot of stuff and gave them some skills that I didn't grow up with. But I also know that they know they can come to me or to a therapist or somewhere Mm. to get support if they need it. Like we don't always have all the answers, but Mm. it's, it's really about like, what do we do when we need support? And so me worrying about my child doesn't feel good to the child. I remember my mom Mm. telling me once, oh, I stayed up all night worrying about you. I said, oh, so now I have to worry about you staying up all night. (laughs) That becomes my problem. So that's not helpful to me or you. Mm, I love that. That's so true. And I will say that as well. It's kind of, so this person that you're worrying about, do you think they, they, do you, do you think they want you worrying yourself sick and not eating properly and kind of being beside yourself and not looking after yourself and neglecting aspects of your life. Do you think this person that probably really loves you wants you to be doing that? I don't think so. No. It's, it's, yeah, I think, you know, in society, there's this glorification of worry really. And it is, it's fascinating because it is a, it's, it's an incredibly destructive process, I think. Yeah. I remember Michael mm. J. Fox talking about it once when he was first diagnosed with Parkinson's. Right. And he said, worry is a complete, waste of time if the thing happens you will have spent energy worrying about it and then going through it and if it never happens then you've spent time worrying about something that never happened so either Mm. way you're doing something that's a waste of time and energy right that's it and something somewhere is being neglected and there's some bit of joy or just your life or your work or your friendships or something that are that are getting a little bit less of you and that you know that's useful to take responsibility for like hang on I've got things I've got to show up for do I want to show up you know wholeheartedly or am I just going to be there in you know body only because I'm too busy having this sort of hypothetical thing in my head yeah it's a real shame yeah it is a real shame so my my last question and this has just been a great conversation um what is your final word of advice for anyone who wants to go on their last first date? Well, I am a therapist. So I have to say that um, the best thing to do uh, to be able to go on your last first date is to really understand your patterns and, and understand the way that you see relationships and kind of the way that you relate. And so do the work of really looking at yourself and your life and I actually on my website I have um, a relationship history uh, workbook and it literally goes through all of your relationships throughout your whole life from childhood school friendship and then romantic and it really kind of exposes and reveals you know what it is that we bring uh, to relationships in terms of our expectations the things we've learned helpful and unhelpful and the assumptions that we also bring because I think for me, when I'm working with people, the biggest stumbling blocks and just blocks in general are people who are arriving, you know, into dates and not really knowing what they're looking for or why, how they are coming across. And so I think 
having a knowledge of our patterns and the stuff that we can do that isn't always helpful is absolutely crucial. So that would be my advice. That's great advice. I wholeheartedly agree that <laughs> knowing yourself and again, cleaning up your side of the street, yeah. um, we do better. We have more knowledge yeah. and knowledge is power. So thank mm. you so much. And um, let's, let's just give some links where people can find you. Oh, thank you. Well, my website is a sharicecook.com and my name is spelled C-H- a-R-I-S-S-E-C-O-O-K-E. And I also have a fantastic Instagram account where I do a lot of support and it's a great community. And that is on Instagram and at uh, the Sharice Cook. So those are the places that you can find me in my work. Great. Okay. And that will all be in the show notes and people can go grab that workbook. I think that's a really mm. excellent resource. Thank we you. don't see patterns until we start to write our patterns mm. often. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize that these people all had the, that in common. <laughs> and yep. so again, like mm. knowing that we can actually begin to change it because we are the common denominator in all mm. our relationships. And when we work on ourselves, we can heal codependency, heal the unhealthy patterns that we've been bringing and really access the joy of healthy mm. relationships, which is really pretty amazing. <laughs> it sure is. I love it. Thank you so much for having me, Sandy. I've had loads of fun. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening. If you love our show, please rate and review us. We really, really appreciate every subscription, every rating, every review. And as always, here's to your last first date. If you are ready to get unstuck, gain new tools, become more empowered, and finally find your last first date, I'd love to talk to you. Fill out an application to be considered for a complimentary half-hour love breakthrough session at lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. That's lastfirstdate.com forward slash application. I look forward to talking to you soon.